Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us. Glad you're here. And our more dedicated listeners will know we've talked a fair amount lately about the Defense Department's budgeting process, how intricate and inflexible and ponderous it is, and also the potential for reforming it in the coming years. On this edition of the show, we're going to focus on how the budgeting process itself is one of the biggest barriers to innovation you could possibly think up. And if you think about it, that connection is actually pretty logical because the defense budget is made up of literally thousands of different program elements, as they're called. They're defined by DOD and sent to Congress every year, and Congress either approves them or doesn't or adds money or subtracts money from each line. But by the time Congress is actually sitting down and making those decisions, what they're really doing is saying yes or no to what the Pentagon thought it would need for each of those line items two years before because because that's how long the process actually takes. And when DOD gets into the year when it's actually spending the money, only a tiny, tiny fraction of those funds are allowed to be reprioritized to deal with the actual problems and the new priorities and the new technologies that have cropped up in the meantime. Our guests this week are two of the co-authors of a new report that argues really persuasively, I think, that the lack of flexibility we just talked about there is a huge cause of what's often called the valley of death in the DOD innovation context. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, and Eric Lofgren is a senior fellow at the center. And again, they're the co-authors of the report called Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death. Gentlemen, thanks very much for being here with us today. Um, it's a super fascinating report, and we're going to dig into the details. But but I'd, I'd like to start the conversation by kind of framing the problems, as you do in the report Maybe the best place to start on that is let's talk a bit about what we mean by valley of death in this context. There's a there's a lot of different usages of that phrase, even just in the defense innovation space. But as you use it in the report, talk a bit about what you mean by valley of death. Jerry, you want to get us started on that? Yeah, I know it's um, it's one of these terms that, you know, has sort of eyes in the beholder. And and I think the image kind of in our report is a perfect example of that, where you've got people touching different parts of the elephant and feeling identifying different parts. And that's kind of what people are saying about the Valley of Death for now. It's becoming in some ways overdetermined. And so we wanted to get some more precision, uh, at least for this report. So um, Eric, why don't you kind of drive in? Because he's the one that really focused this to help define us precisely um, the Valley of Death. Eric, please. Sure. Yeah. It actually came from a 1991 book. It was actually called Crossing the Chasm. And Valley of Death only showed up once there, but it really kind of took off as something about how do you get from early adopters to the early majority in terms of the commercial industry? And it's been tailored to all sorts of uses, biotech, oil and gas, all sorts of industries like cybersecurity have their own definitions for the Valley of Death. In the Department of Defense, we also have all or the Department of Defense does has a number of ways it is actually being used. Is it the time to get to a small business innovation research phase three, the commercialization of the SIBR program? Is it hitting that milestone B, you know, getting a real program of record? Is it passing test and evaluation, getting to a proof of record? What we focused on in the, uh, the report really though, was the idea of funding flexibility because it takes two or more years of cycle time to get something from the front end of the system through what's called the program objectives memorandum, and then eventually through the layers of bureaucracy up to OMB and then Congress, four committees, right? And then they they get it into law and appropriations. So we really focused on the time to get 
resources to enable a new good idea and get it at scale. And so that's where we focus the time from planning through the program objectives to appropriations. Yeah. And the reason why we did that was that, you know, because that's the real struggle right now, because you've got all these, I mean, the departments embrace OT, uh, other transactions, authorities, commercial solutions and opening to develop all kinds of prototypes. Um, but there's a big frustration that, you know, these companies develop these prototypes and um, the DOD customers want them, but then there's no one to receive them. There's no program of record to put them in. And it's the whole budgeting problem. And that that's the valley of death that is really bedeviling a lot of the department today. And that's what that was the focus that Eric just outlined and that we did in the report. To neck this down a little bit, would it be right to say there's almost potentially two valleys here? One kind of inside the RDT&E budget where you're not able to quickly assign funds to new technologies as they come along. And then also maybe even a separate valley when you're, as you guys were alluding to, transitioning some piece of new research into a program of record. Am I thinking about that in roughly the right way? Uh, Well, actually, they're probably more similar than you think because um, the program of record starts at potentially milestone B, but with uh, legislation in 2009, it was kind of pulled back to milestone A. So that's really right at that cusp of prototyping and then into full-scale development within the research development test and evaluation uh, process. Once you get a program of record, you're supposed to have fully costed the life cycle, created this baseline of cost schedule technical, and you'll already have planned, I'm going to go into test and evaluation at this time, and then I'll have procurement money, right? Getting into production, fielding, and scaling um, at this time. So it's already baked in earlier into the process. And so a program of record usually starts at that development or prototyping phase, as opposed to when you're going to go and, and start to put these into the field and low rate initial production and those types of things. Okay. And as Jerry alluded to earlier, you know, the the primary cause that you guys are talking about here for this valley of death is the lack of flexibility that the department has in the year of execution. One thing the report does a really nice job of is laying out that it was not always thus. There, There used to be an enormous amount of flexibility within the DOD budget, and it's just gotten narrower and narrower and narrower over time. Talk about historically how much the department had and how and why that's become more and more constricted over time. Uh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this idea of program of record, time of the program of record and valley of death. And these things didn't really start until the 1960s with the planning, programming, budgeting, execution system that came around with Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense. And you had a great episode uh, recently with uh, commissioners from the American Society of Military Comptrollers as a task force, but there's also a commission on that from Congress looking at it as well. But before the Department of Defense had this system, appropriations could be characterized as lump sum, no year, and uh, reprogrammable. So in general, the budget lines themselves were very high level. Uh, The Navy, for example, would have one line essentially in procurement for ships, right? So you would have multiple ships that would go under that line, but the Navy had the flexibility to kind of move money around between shipbuilding programs as they were needed. And this was common across all of the services. They had more broader budget line items. And also at that time, money never expired. There wasn't this use it or lose it that you have today uh, where you have to get everything obligated before the end of the fiscal year. So research and development has two years, procurement three years, and actually shipbuilding five years. So it doesn't sound like a big restriction, uh, but it does drive a lot of behavior and especially in O&M money. 
though in the 50s, operations and maintenance was actually expired. And the last part was reprogramming. So once you get a budget, how can you move money uh, between line items? And there was no reprogramming rules really until the late 1950s and 1960s. There was a big incident where the Navy started five fleet ballistic missile submarines without prior approval of Congress. Um, and Congress was like, wow, that was a really big move. And you stopped a lot of programs in order to go do that. Uh, we eventually agree with it, but we need more insight into this. And the department had a lot of flexibility there until it lost trust um, under the Nixon administration, where Nixon impounded funds and the amount of reprogramming went from about 8% of the top line. So DOD could move 8% of the budget through reprogramming down to less than 1% using above threshold reprogramming. So Congress really tightened the reins there, gave a little bit back during the global war on terror. But as that wound down, uh, the department has uh, the amount of reprogramming both above and below threshold, uh, the amount it needs Congress to approve and the amount it can do itself has really come down. Uh, and it's less than 1% of the top line within research and development appropriation is 3% or less. Um, so think about that. You've put all of your money into these small line items that got broken out. So you have literally 1800 line items that you have that are these boxes and you can't move money between them. And the, the department basically is able to move 3% of those line items program for multiple years in advance. So the threat changes, technology changes, the world changes. But the issue here is that the budgeting system and the way money is fixed isn't able to change as rapidly. And so that's what we're talking about when we say execution flexibility, the money, the ability to move money around in the year of execution in a timely way. Yeah. And Eric, it really lays it out pretty, pretty well and how it was, you know, we went from, you know, kind of having that flexibility to not having the flexibility and in our conversations with Congress, congressional staff, appropriators and authorizers and uh, folks in the building, you'll see that, I mean, this was, there were, you know, faults on both sides. The department was not as transparent as it could be on some of the actions. They would surprise Congress. Uh, and then that would lead to a ratcheting down of um, or ratcheting up of oversight. It, it had, that's how we got to this. We've gotten the situation we're at today. And the thing that's not great is that um, the relationship between Congress and um, as we lay out in a separate section and the department is not very good either. They sort of talk past each other in a lot of ways. And there's a real profound lack of trust. Um, that really kind of makes it hard to do some of this. So what we try to do is look at, you know, kind of what was doable, what is doable. Um, and so we kind of laid out four scenarios, you know, because we recognize the commission that's going on. We're very supportive of that, but we were trying to focus on what things can be done regardless of whether or not you change PPBE. So that was part of what we were trying to do. And what we found is, you know, there's not a really needs for need for much changes in law um, or even policy, maybe some slight ones. But, you know, we looked at four potential areas which we can go into and we found that like two were not really doable based on the trust issues. Um, but two, we think are, could um, could help going forward. That's Jerry McGinn, the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Also talking with Eric Lofgren, a senior fellow at the center, talking about their new report on some of the consequences of DOD's very, very inflexible budget. And we'll be back to talk more in just a minute. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. 
Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking this week with Jerry McGinn and Eric Lofgren from the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University about their new report on DOD budgeting and the lack of execution flexibility in the DOD budget. I, I want to get into some more detail on those solutions in just a minute, but just to just to drill down a little bit on, on, on scoping the problem here a little bit. One, one of my favorite stats in the report is that I, I think it was 1956, the Army requested zero dollars in procurement money just because it had so much no year money sitting around from the from the Korean War that it could just spend on kind of whatever. We're we're probably not going back there and it's probably not desirable to go back there. But but compare that to where we are now in terms of how tightly defined these program elements are. Eric, for, for folks who have not studied the defense budget carefully. Can you just give us a flavor for, for how prescriptive each one of those individual, I think you said 1800 PEs are, uh, you know, how, how much control does Congress actually exert over these finite things? So yeah, Congress does have its say, of course, it has the power of the purse, right? Um, but in the in times past, a lot of budgeting was actually focused on the inputs, right? Like the organizations, you had like a Bureau of Ships, a Bureau of Aeronautics, um, in the army, you had these technical services. And so it was more organizationally focused. So the organizations had flexibility to move money between program elements. And actually, when the PBBE was created, and they wanted to move the budget away from these broad line items towards uh, these, these very like program-centric line items that correspond with the PBBE, so from inputs to outputs, right? You're not buying an organization that goes out to to procure outputs. You're actually buying the the line items of the outputs, the weapon systems by their name. Congress actually didn't like that at first. They thought um, it would take authority away from them because if these programs were created by a committee of experts, then they had no way to say, oh, well, what was the technical or military requirement? So they felt like, First, if it, if the program was defined by experts, how do how do they get the political voice in? But second, they recognize that the department wouldn't be able to change its direction without legislative expression. So once you lock some a program in, you can if you have technical problems, if inflation happens, if there is a change in the threat or there's a new opportunity, you can't take advantage of that. And Congress recognized that um, in this in the '60s. But over time, with the with the loss of trust, um, they've adopted these program elements. And so where a service might have 200 or more program elements from the 1970s to today, in the 1960s, they only had 20 program elements, right? So there's a 10xing of the number of line items, and you can't move between those line items. So you're kind of like a train on a, on a railroad track, right, going down, and you, you can't really pivot between things or handle problems as they come. And so today, the average research development test and evaluation line item is approximately 30, a little bit more than 30 million, the median one. So there's a plethora of these very small, very narrow, tightly defined program elements. And they they actually have basically the contractor, um, the requirement, the specification on it. And so it shackles essentially the program managers from making those opportunity choice trade-offs to say, I'm going to trade off cost or schedule, or I'll go for the 80% solution at 20% cost and move money somewhere else 
um, that needs help. They can't make those choices. And so that is a little bit of the, the background there on the line iteming and why that matters. Um, and, and as you said before, only 1% of that budget is reprogrammable. So reprogramming as it exists now is not a super big help to this problem. But but you do offer that as one potential solution here. Well, let's talk about what could be done in terms of delivering more flexibility via reprogramming and, and how far realistically you could go with reprogramming while still maintaining some degree of congressional oversight. Well, this is where we came into the realities. There's just no appetite, you know, particularly with the border wall controversy in the last administration, but it's not just that, you know, it's just, you know, kind of a reticence after the turn of the war, but the, it's hard to do, um, you know, the different levels of programming above, above and below threshold. And it, um, uh, it's just gotten much harder, but um, I mean, Eric, why don't you kind of talk through kind of some of the options that we, we, we looked at. Yeah, and in the world of reprogramming, of course, Congress actually reduced the reprogramming thresholds for procurement and operations and maintenance accounts in the last few years down to $10 million. Uh, so that was a significant shift in the in the wrong direction. But it's not necessarily clear that there's the appetite, again, as Jerry said, to raise those thresholds a lot. So that wasn't one of the main recommendations that we made in terms of, of reprogramming. Mm -hmm. But we did think that there was some opportunity for additional reprogramming within types of like a budget portfolio. So if the department defines some kinds of capability portfolios, they're working on portfolio management right now, because some of these uh, appropriations accounts and line items um, at the top level, they're not helpful. Like looking at procurement by service isn't as helpful as looking at okay, space-based sensing solutions, can we move money between within this portfolio? So maybe Congress can have an expedited process for certain types of reprogrammings within a portfolio signed off by, you know, OSD or someone like that. So that was one of the options. Could you raise thresholds within portfolios? So at least within a portfolio, can you move money around a little bit easier, still provide Congress notification and, and transparency into that and the opportunity to say no, but, you know, give the department a little bit more flexibility there. Um, the border wall episode that you bring up in the report is is interesting to me, partly because that really wasn't a process problem, right? That was a that was an abuse of the process, really. And it was a political decision. And, and for folks who don't remember what we're talking about here, essentially what happened was the administration decided to use military construction money and, and, and re, reapportion it toward border wall construction. But but that's, again, that seems to me like that's not, Congress might not want to view that as, as something wrong with the process, but it does get to the point of a breakdown in trust and, and how a lot of this is bound up in, trust and as i think you say in the report emotional issues that are hard to get around with a blue ribbon panel and no matter how many commissions you put up here that 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 trust barrier's got to be overcome one way or the other so maybe one or the other of you just riff a little bit on this trust issue and how important it is well one thing i, I want to point out that we bring on the report is that um is that the reprogram actually part of the the thing that made the border wall controversy sting so much is that the executive branch actually can do pretty much whatever it really wants. I mean, it, there's not really, it's more of a custom, uh, and uh, I forget the term that w was in there um, uh, in the report, but- A norm, uh, I think, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it was there was a gentleman's agreement. That's okay, it. yeah, it's a gentleman's agreement, right? Uh, and they broke that agreement, and that's one of the reasons why Congress is like, you know, they really could do more of this, and so they had to. They reacted very strongly, um, and you know, but there, you know, there just really is kind of a lack of trust, and you can see this as the funnel that is in the report. Eric talks about the the de- decline in flexibilities. Mm-hmm. Those are different episodes in the Nixon administration, you know, the Trump administration, you know, and, and different activities where. Uh, Congress felt burned or the administration felt they they weren't given enough flexibility. So it's really gotten uh, difficult. And and because, you know, one of our findings was that, you know, there's not as much of a barrier of authorities or um, legal laws. It's really more Congress and DOD can can overcome a lot of these things. They just have to build better. They have to strengthen their relationships and build that trust because creating portfolios, uh, you know, even reprogramming, they could uh, they could adjust, but some things are harder to do than others, um, and it's gotten harder with the the lack of trust. And I think that all, I think that also gets to the point of uh, um, there's there's almost none of this that couldn't be fixed outside of law and regulation, right? I mean, and that that's that's true on the 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 program element stuff that we were talking about too, right? There's no law that says that there have to be this many program elements in the DOD budget and that Congress has to approve each one as they're submitted. DOD could propose anything it wanted and it's up to Congress to accept that or not, which seems like again, this is another one of these things that makes this almost harder than acquisition reform because it it goes back to depending on trust. If we submit a budget that looks more flexible to Congress, are they going to go along with it? Yeah. And that the trust aspect, as you just said, there is is critical. I mean, a couple of years ago, right, shortly after the border wall crisis, you know, the Air Force said, how about we collapse some of these uh, program elements? We have, you know, like 14 program elements in one of our accounts. Can we just reduce that to five? And here's our proposal. They put that through the budget process and it went to Congress. And then the House appropriations in the report, they looked at it and they said, I see what you're trying to do, but the granting of additional budget flexibility through these larger line items, the time's not right. The presumption of trust and comedy that that we have between the legislative and executive branch doesn't exist yet. So we're going to you know, break those all out again. And we see that repeatedly going on, that the way Congress is moving is to actually get more insight to break out a program into multiple line items so it gets so Congress has more visibility and also control over the allocation of those resources. And so being able to build that trust up really does kind of start with this idea of transparency from the Department of Defense so that Congress and the staffers and people in oversight can see what's going on at the lower levels and they're not being gamed to a degree, right? Like you move something around underneath the program element and then you ask for reprogramming for something else and Congress doesn't actually see what's going on and feels like that they're not participating in that. So there's a stem that needs to be changed here in terms of if you build that trust then you can have these broader programs or budget line items, which delegates execution flexibility or really the decision rights down to the lower levels or the people who are closer to what is the right technology and what is the right requirement. And this is allows the department because the whole point here is relentlessly focused on um, getting ready for a strategic competition, right? 
and that needs to be within the the five year window. And so the whole point is that the whole department can move faster because it's so big to be able to delegate that flexibility, you can move much faster, but we also need the transparency and oversight to make sure that you filter out the bad things. Yeah, Eric, maybe talk a little bit more about, go ahead, Jerry. I was just gonna add a little little different flavor to it. And part of it is a, you know, pogo problem, you know, we've met the enemy and it is us, right? So the department, like, you know, when you, when you have a department that's focused, you know, the acquisition systems on focused on developing very, very precise requirements for very, very precise equipment and systems, you know, that, that doesn't really build flexibility. You don't start with building flexibility in this, you know, so there's a lot the department can do to help itself, you know, by, kind of building more iterative requirements or doing things like Eric was talking about, you know, trying to combine portfolios to get more flexibility. And you're starting to see that more in the departments, but, but you know, I, I think they have to start doing more of that and then building the trust. And one of the areas, the ways to do that, and we touch on this in the report, but getting some um, technologies to be able to give them the, the congressional oversight seers, more access to um, real-time reporting uh, so that you can help build that transparency, um, but in a way that's not going to have the Congress turning a 50-mile screwdriver kind of thing, right? So, Yeah, that's that's exactly where I was about to go um, to have Eric follow up a little bit. Can you give us a little more flavor on, on, on what, this, what this approach might look like in the real world? I mean, a world in which you have more consolidated program elements with some more flexibility, but some increased transparency and increased reporting. I mean, maybe, maybe that the level of detail for each program element is not written into the budget submission every year, but there's more data that Congress sees. Where would that data come from? Do the data sources exist in a well-developed enough way that the department could kind of present that to Congress on a rolling basis today? Well, DOD has been working on this, this system called ADVANA, uh, which is pulling together a number of different data sources. So you have the, those are like the big level program level um, data sources on cost schedule technical. And then there's all sorts of other data streams that feed into that earned value. There's cost and software reports. I'm sure that will be associated at some point in the future, but also the core of that is really coming from, you know, the audibility program. Where did all, like, what are the obligations and the expenditures, right? So Congress will get reports of, of, you know, the obligation rates at the top level of these program elements, right? So if they want to be able to see um, what's going on with programs, they almost have to create more line items to get that visibility. But that's constraining the, the department in the future because a budget is a future plan of action, whereas the obligation and expenditure rates, well, those are more like accounting and those are more what is and what has been. And so tying those two together actually kinds of, uh, you know, shackles the department, whereas what Congress really needed was the ability to see the lower levels in terms of obligations and expenditures, mapping those to who is executed, who's the organization in charge of this, right? Um, seeing the contract data flow in, tagging that by programs and multiple aspects. So I can see for NC3, right? It's it's in space. It's also nuclear. It's also a C4 ISR. So there's not one lens to look at a budget structure or to look at the force structure. There's multiple lenses, multi, multiple dimensions of analysis that needs to occur. And this richness of data can be tagged more easily on the back end. Um, and then that provides you insight and oversight as to where the department is going 
as opposed to forcing all of that detail to fix a forward plan and then locking the department into that detailed plan according to weapon system. So again, this probably is it like a super well-defined way of, of thinking about it or expressing it, but I think there is a notion that you can get lower level insight into the actuals and what's actually happening without constraining the department's forward plan. So you can right now, like the, the investment accounts, there's 30,000 pages that is submitted in a budget request, 30,000 pages, right? Can we re reduce that, streamline it? And then you can double click into like one of these portfolio budgets and see all the actuals coming in, see all the types of projects and programs that they're running, who's running them. And that provides that transparency uh, to Congress that they can stop something if they wanted to, right? Um, oh, I don't like that. Let's stop doing that. Um, and the, the, the program managers will respond. And you, again, it's built up on this trust. You don't have to express it in legislation, but they will re respond and, and try to act in good faith, I think, when you have that transparency. Unless I'm mistaken, though, if you if you just give the Hill access to Advana and some of these other other databases, really most of what they're seeing is obligations and outlays. They're not necessarily seeing what you got for the money. Did the thing work right? Am, am I am I missing something there, or, or is there even much of an appetite on the Hill to to find out that sort of information? Because they're, I mean, they're getting some of it in the budget submission every year. But but how would you readjust this process so that they can? have insight into not just what dollars are being spent and how many, but what's coming from those expenditures. Yeah, most certainly that I would, I would argue that they do want that insight. That's where they want to focus their effort. Right. And, and think about things strategically um, in that way. And they do get staff or day briefs and people come to the Hill and they inform them of the progress of the progress. But I think uh, this type of system that we're, we're trying to, expound here, it takes away from the front end where you're saying, let me give oversight over, did you have all these cost estimates? Did you do your affordability analysis? Did you get a certification for this, that, and the other? Instead, focus it on, did you make a proper use of the funding? Um, what are the outcomes? Can I make sure that every there is no fraud, waste, or abuse, but really get down to, is this the right thing? And, and use that congressional expression to direct the department in a more useful way in terms of outcomes and uh, making sure that the joint force is integrated. It's Eric Lofgren, a senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, also talking with Jerry McGinn, the executive director of the center. Back in a minute, and we'll talk more about their report, Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death in the DOD Budget. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbiv. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Jerry McGinn and Eric Lofgren from the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University about their new report on execution flexibility in the DOD budget. We've been talking about some of the consequences of the lack of flexibility DOD currently has in its budget and maybe some of the ways to fix that problem. One thing we haven't talked about yet is innovation funds. Let's let's go there a little bit. Talk about how DOD is using them as of right now and, and how this could be part of the equation going forward. 
Yeah, as you can see there, as we lay out there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different ones. A lot of them continue to exist. Some of them are new. Some of them um, have gone away. It, it, it's sort of like each uh, a leader comes in with a vision and they want to uh, address a problem. And so they establish a fund. You know, they've had, sort of had mixed success, but they, they're focused on like a specific service or a specific set of capabilities. And they've just... Um, struggled to you know you know gain mass and when I mean, you look at it across the department so right now there's you know how you choose trying to do a raider funds and and uh, and then they have the new app fit um, efforts they develop a lot of um, idea you know prototypes and so on but again this oftentimes are they don't have a receptor on the back end you know a an office that can receive these capabilities that's where the struggle has been and that's what we try to kind of talk about in um, in our ideas for going forward. Yeah, and I would recommend you check out the report, um, and we want to open source the data as well. But really, we went through a lot of the budget documents and and the some of the DD fourteen sixteen data, you know, and then classified these things. So we thought like, okay, there's core innovation funds that the Office of Secretary of Defense has. There's tons of acronyms: JCTD. Raider, ETCDs, all these types of things. Um, they're about a few hundred million dollars a year. They tend to require long proposal processes. Um, so even then, many times you can't get money like within a matter of months. They could take seven, nine, or more than 12 months to get any of these funds. But these are the kind of core funds. There's all sorts of other funds you can throw in there and other flexible potential accounts where you can go to get money quickly to bridge the valley of death. So you don't want to wait those two years. What are all the sources of funds where I can get something in the year of execution, put it to my project and put that as a down payment so I can line up the real program of record. So if you put in all of the sources that we could identify, like the strategic capabilities office, even the space development agency, we kind of looked at um, small business innovation research funds. Not all of these are perfect because they're not as flexible to pivot wherever needed, uh, but they are useful. If we put them all together, they're less than 1% of the DOD top line. And they're just like a rounding error on these sand charts, right? So the total sources of funds that you can say, hey, I have a project, it, it came out of the labs, it came out of the company's internal research and development, it coming is coming from commercial technology or the commercial world. Can I get you money within the two-year cycle time of this budget process? And so there's not many of these funds. And the funds that we did identify each have their own challenges to getting the money quickly. But then the real problem is, even if you fund the um, effort with these, where's the long-term right program dollars? Where do those come in? And that's the, the catcher's myth that Jerry's been talking about. Um, a lot of times you have to work with the program offices and get in on the front end of this cycle and everything needs to align perfectly. I have to, my Cibber funds came in at this year. Then I got a special year of execution fund from like the joint capabilities tech demonstration. And then I got a reprogramming. And then eventually the appropriation came for my, my program. That perfect alignment often doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I like the way you guys describe it as a, a catch-22 in the report because you, you, you've got to have that catcher's mitt there lined up two years in advance anticipating that something's going to come successfully out of RDT&E, which is you're never going to predict any of that correctly. So, so how, do you real, how would you realign this process so that that irrational setup is not how we do things anymore in the innovation funds? 
Well, what we, what we proposed was, you know, just trying a pilot or two um, on, you know, where you have a kind of a, you know, I think we said $100 million kind of level innovation fund, you know, at, the, at one of the services or multiple services, but then having those uh, then linked through uh, experimentation into um, a specific PEO um, that would be able to then execute or, you know, transition that that those efforts so that you've got you've got the you've got the fund and then you've got you know the uh, the, the catching mint so you can really kind of get um get more transition um to meet this the need yeah and the uh within the catcher's mint if you have these larger line items that more activities can be done under them they're justified a little bit more broadly then going from you know solution a to solution b of the same requirement you don't need to line up a new start or go do a whole new reprogramming effort or get a new appropriation. You can kind of do it within the flexibility of the money that's already there. And this occurs in, in numerous budget lines and, and already. We're just saying, let's grow this a little bit and, and see how it works, right? Consolidate some of the budget lines and, and show the progress and show what can happen so that you have that catcher's mitt on the back end and the program offices can flex some of their cost schedule and technical to meet that. One thing we haven't talked about yet is it, it kind of matters what you're buying and what you're investing in when you talk about how important this inflexible funding approach really is. Like the, the traditional PPBE and MDAP process is probably still kind of okay if you're buying a main battle tank. Definitely not for something like JADC2. So, so if you had to pick a place to start, would it make sense to, to add more flexibility to certain areas of the budget and leave the process that Congress is more comfortable with for, for at least some other portion of the budget. Yeah, that's what we were talking about was, you know, focusing on, you know, these areas like JADC2 where you have these clear, you've got the cycle time that is well within kind of the palm process that makes it, you know, so insane. Um, but using, you know, these kind of capability areas um, as uh, test beds for these, these kind of approaches. Yeah, and JADC2 is an interesting one because it's perfect for showing why the process doesn't work, but it's also potentially not like a well-defined single entity or single requirement that gets funded um, in this way, right? So all the services are contributing to JADC2. I think there's a lot of views on, well, how do you, what does portfolio actually mean? What, like, how do you create like what you're talking about? And I think you know, one of my thoughts is just how do we give some of the flexibility to the offices most likely to be doing this software intensive um, work that really does kind of break the PBBE paradigm. So focus on those C4 ISR program executive offices, the the PEOs for digital um, and that and those kinds of things, because they are more likely to have these small efforts, these software efforts, or these small electronics efforts all of which change within the cycle time of the PBBE process. Um, so being able to aggregate some of that and give them a little flexibility would be useful. And then the way JADC2 comes together is probably, I mean, there's lots of ways it's going to come together, uh, but to say that there's going to be one JADC2 like bucket of money and then someone's going to manage it might not be the, the optimal way to get you know, the joint force together. Before we leave, I, I think I do definitely want to hammer home the idea that this is not just an issue of 
oh, Congress is being so inflexible and they won't let the department do what it wants. Uh, the department has contributed, I think, to this inflexibility over the years, too. As you pointed out in the report, part of the inflexibility was actually written into the financial management regulation around 2000 by DOD itself. That wasn't an act of Congress. And, and you know, even in cases where Congress does give the department some more flexibility, like in the no-color money software pilot that uh, that just came up about a couple of years ago, the department's been really hesitant to propose new programs into that thing. So this is I guess my point is here, this feels like a cultural issue on both sides of the Potomac. It's not just Congress not willing to be flexible. No, I, I think that's fair. I mean, and I, I think we tried to make that clear in our report. And, and, and you do. Not, I just wanted to highlight it for know, the listeners. Yeah, it, you know, this this is, um, you know, there, there's a lot the department can do. They're not they're not doing or they're not doing it at scale. Like, like you say, the software path, but we didn't have time to really dig into that, but it is sort of curious why you know that hasn't been kind of really large scale kind of deployed in an apartment um so you know there there's a lot that can be done you know you can't just like give the department all the budget flexibility it wants or it might desire and expect that you're going to get better outcomes right i mean if there's a big human capital aspect to this of empowering people and delegating flexibility, but then the accountability that comes from that. So I think, you know, Congress can actually focus its oversight and do a better job of that in some respects by when the department has this flexibility, because you have a program manager who might be there for the duration of a whole, whole program, if you can speed up these cycle times. And then that program manager, does he or she have the flexibility from within the department? And so I think this gets to your point that there's lots of levels of bureaucracy um, in the department, outside of the department. Um, a lot of the times Congress does provide flexibilities and it's not their processes that um, are holding the department back. It's actually the department itself uh, where you have 50 offices that must sign off on a single milestone B decision document. Um, it's these types of things that the government itself and within the department can can start to take care of, but it really takes dedicated leadership and top cover to do this. And the trust with the department will come along from that. But the the department has a long way to go and it's making a lot of strides, I think, in its own right. And the adoption of this adaptive acquisition framework is key. And I think there's a lot of good things going on in contracting and acquisition. Um, it's just making that progress and accelerating it. That's Eric Lofgren, a senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Also with us is Jerry McGinn, the executive director of the center. We'll come back and wrap up our conversation on execution flexibility and the DOD budget after one more break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Jerry McGinn and Eric Lofgren from the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University on their new report, Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death in the DOD Innovation Context. All right, I'm going to close with probably a completely unfair question, which is going to be on, along the lines of where, where do we start on all this? You know, as we talked about earlier, it, it took decades to get the inflexible funding system that we have now. It, it may take years or decades to get to something a little more rational. I don't know. But um, 
what would you most like to see in the next couple NDAA and, and budget cycles that, that could at least demonstrate some progress here? I'd like to see kind of a, a um, the department work, work with Congress to build this kind of uh, innovation uh, capability that allows the department to uh, have the flexibility and execution at the same time, you know, the have a catcher's mitt on the other side. So you can iterate and develop capabilities and you probably start small, start in, that, in, in a specific capability area, like Eric said, in like the C4ISR area to really kind of l- let's tackle the parts of JADC2 using this approach and develop that um, the department working with um, the Congress uh, over the next couple cycles. Yeah. And I guess a couple of specific things I might like to see, I don't think any of them actually require a language in the NDAA or an Inappropriations Act, but definitely within a, one of the reports is to say we would like this to happen. Um, but the department can do most of these things already. Um, so yeah. can the department and OMB remove the expense versus investment restrictions on software? You can use any appropriate, any color of money for software. It's not because software is never done, right? So this differentiation between development, production, sustainment of software. Um, We have a new budget activity for that. But if you just remove that restriction from the financial management regulation, you automatically give a lot more flexibility to folks in the program offices. Changing the new start regulation from for the entire effort to for the fiscal year. So the department can start something under 10 million as a new start, but it's for the entire effort. So like the whole RDT and E effort has to be less than 10 million. That's pretty restrictive. You can't start too much on that. But if you change it to for the fiscal year, you can put a $10 million down payment on something, notify Congress. And if they don't like it, you don't continue. But that gives you a down payment on something much more substantial. Can you remove the budget activities at all from rdt e right? Like we have these phase transitions from prototyping to full-scale development. I'm not really sure those are super helpful. A lot of times when... GAO has looked at this in the past, they're doing all sorts of different activities across all different budget activities. So it's not actually being executed in that way in some respects, but also it ties the hands of getting something into the field fast, which is really what matters. Um, And then there's a number of other recommendations, I think, that go along with streamlining the, the budget justification documents. But one thing I think is important is, can you just get rid of all budget lines under 20 million? Just say, look, let's just start with some budget line item consolidation. Let the department propose consolidated lines, but no lines under 20 million. That's too much detail. We can consolidate those. And then the last part is how to you know, advance that along the same lines of the portfolio efforts already going on in OSD uh, to deliver joint capabilities and mission threads. So some alignment there. So those are just uh, some ideas. Those ideas from Eric Lofgren, a senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. We've also been talking with Jerry McGinn, the executive director at the Center. They're two co-authors of the new report, Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death in the context of the DOD budget. We'll post a link to the report we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And if you missed any of this week's program, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at that same website. You can also find us in podcast form. Sometimes we're able to include a little bonus content in the podcast version that doesn't make it on the radio. You can subscribe to On DOD wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbin. So long.
You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 